Well, here we go. Welcome to Celebrate Recovery. Tonight, we're excited to have Maggie Woods share her story. Would you welcome Maggie Woods? Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name is Maggie Woods, and um, I walked through a 13-year addiction to opiates that cost me just about everything. What if I told you that I was a married mother of two, a minister, a preacher, a teacher, um, a Bible college student, um, a mother, a wife, a spirit-filled believer, and a full-blown drug addict? That's me. I've had 18 arrests in two states and three counties. I've spent time in four different jails. Um, and I functioned a long time like that until I didn't. And that's how a lot of addicts are. They function a long time until they don't. And that always is how it happens. And I thought, there's no way. I'm, I have a problem. I'm a good person. I love Jesus. I, I come to church. I lead a ministry. I'm somebody's mommy. There's no way I, I'm a drug addict. There's no way I'm what I thought a drug addict was. I'm not like those people, I told myself. I'm not like the people I've seen on TV. I'm not like the person I see in a movie, you know, cutting around a corner and looking all sweaty and dirty. I, I'm not like that. I didn't identify with that. So I thought, there's no way I can be that. I, there must be something else. I don't have a problem. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my childhood. I grew up, um, there was a lot of addiction in my family. Um, my father was the sergeant in the town where I grew up. He was the law. Um, big man, six foot four. People called him Sarge. They called him Sergeant Lurch. Um, and he also was an alcoholic. And he was a functioning alcoholic, much like I was a functioning addict. Um, so I grew up with that dichotomy with my dad being both an addict and my authority, and what represented the law. So, you know, this is the way I'm raised. Uh, my mother um, had a gambling problem. We would have card games in my house as, when I was a little girl, and my sister and I would wait the tables and make money. And we just thought that was normal. And obviously that's not legal, but my dad was the law. So I'm raised like this. I'm raised thinking... You can get around the law. You can get around the rules. And the rules don't necessarily apply. So this is how I'm being raised. Um, at 17 years of age, I came to Jesus. I went to a Bible study and accepted Christ. And, and I had a change in my heart. I, something changed in me, and I knew I wanted to be different than what I was raised around. My dad had brothers and sisters that were addicts, like drug addicts, and we, we considered them to be different than what was going on in our house. They were in and out of jail, but my dad was the law. We weren't like them. Um, my dad's sister died young. My dad's father died young. Both of my dad's brothers died young in addiction, but we weren't like them. We were different, but I knew that I didn't want to be like any of this. I knew I was going to get far away from any of that, and I was going to be this quote-unquote good person because that's what I identified with. I'm a good person. I'm not like them. I'm different. And as I came to know Jesus a little bit, and I started feeling a call in my life, 
And I started to, to feel like the Lord was calling me into ministry, and he was calling me to preach and to teach, and I've always been able to speak. I'm very comfortable in front of crowds and talking to people. It's just a gifting that the Lord has put in me. You know, that had nothing to do with anything I earned. He just threw it in there. When I was born, here it was. Um, and I knew that I wanted to go and pursue this ministry thing. And I kind of thought in my head, that will make me that good person that I aim to be. Because if you're a preacher, you have to be a good person, right? I mean, that's a shoe-in for a good person. If you're in the ministry, you're a good person. And you're not like those bad people that you don't want to be like. So um, I prayed about it, and the Lord laid on my heart to come to Lee. Um, so I packed up my little car. I had a little Chevette that didn't have floorboards in it. And I said, God's calling me to go to Lee. My parents were like, okay, you know, see ya. So got in my little car, and you could see the interstate through my floorboard. And I was like, God is calling me to go to Lee. And he was. He was. So I drove down, and I pursued uh, Bible and um, psychology, and I was going to be a preacher, and I was going to take the world by storm. That was my plan. Um, meanwhile, my parents divorced, and they sold our house. So now I lived in Cleveland, Tennessee, because our house was gone, and I didn't have any money. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to get a job now. It's going to work out, you know, and, and we used to have little Bible studies in our apartment, at Lee, I thought I was going to fall off of this, um, at Lee, and we would turn our coffee table upside so we'd have a pulpit to preach from, me and my roommates. And, I mean, we thought we were going to take the world by storm. And I had to get a job, so I went to Jenkins Deli one day with my roommate, and I said, um, this place looks decent. Um, maybe I could work here. And she said, well, ask the server if they're hiring. And I said, okay. And I asked the server, are you guys hiring? She said, I don't know. Let me go ask the manager. And the manager was that guy back there in the back. And he, they, said, um, they said, that girl over there wants a job. And he said, well, let me go take her an application. And he, he came strutting over there and gave me an application. He thought I was cute. And my roommate actually thought Mark was cute. And I said, well, I'll find out about him. I'll let you know if you can date him. So I'm still getting back to her on that one <laughs> because, because, as you know, that's my husband. Um, so I met my future husband at Jenkins Deli, and we got married years later, um, and we had our first baby, Hillary, in 1995, and we struggled financially. Uh, Mark was from Macon, Georgia, and I was from Ohio, and we didn't want to go to either place. So we said, well, we'll just stay here. And we said, okay, we've got to have a church because we are good people. You know, and I'm called to preach. That was like my number one thing I always had in my head. I'm called to preach, and I've got to find a church, you know, where I can go and pursue this. And we've got to, we've got to be Christians. We've got to stay in church. And Mark said, well, I, Mark was raised in a charismatic church, and I had been in the Church of God in Ohio. So Mark was like, I feel like we should find a church that's not a church of God. And I said, okay, let's find one. And we were like, I've heard of this church called Church of the Harvest. And I was like, okay. My roommates had, would go sometimes and hear Pastor Rhonda preach, and they just thought the world of it. So we thought, this is where we'll go. So we planted ourselves in this church. And um, I remember I started coming first, and I'd sit in the back. And um, I remember Pastor made it a big point to find out my name. And back then, 
um, as the church was growing, pastor had somebody standing at the door taking Polaroids. Do you remember that, pastor? Of the new couples, because there were so many young little couples that came here. And we had our Polaroid, and, and pastor knew our name the very next time we came, and we were like, he knows our names. This is, this is where we're going. And that's what made us come here, because Pastor Hank knew our names the very next Sunday after they took a Polaroid of us as we were leaving. I thought that was the coolest. So we struggled financially, um, but we tried to trust Jesus, and we had our little baby Hillary, and we wanted to raise her in church. So Hillary was here, and at this time, um, during the worship, there were tons of little ones. And Hillary would run around like a little wild person in here. And she would knock people down with flags, and she'd smack them when she went by because she loved the music and she loved to dance. And um, I'm so thankful for that, that Hillary got to be raised in that. Um, so we struggled. Let me reel this back in. I don't know, just a little reminiscent there. So we struggled financially, but we wanted to trust the Lord. And we wanted to be involved in a church, and we came here and planted ourselves here. So... We were here, and Mark was working, and I was working, and we were still working at Jenkins and trying to raise Hillary and trying to do the right thing and trying to be good people. And in 1998, um, I got pregnant again, and this time it was a little boy. And I had issues, and the pregnancy wasn't right. And I had a lot of problems. And, and, I, and I struggled, and my parents were kind of detached from me, and Mark worked a lot, and I was kind of isolated. And um, things were just difficult. And I went to the doctor, and I didn't feel good, and I was bleeding. And they said, well, let's take an ultrasound. So they took an ultrasound, and I could see on the ultrasound where part of that little baby was caving in. And they said, this is not right. This is not right. We're going to go get the doctor. So they ran out and came back in and got the doctor, and they were, we're sorry, Mrs. Woods. Um, this doesn't look good. What we're going to do is we're going to send you home, and um, we're going to give you this medicine, and you're going to pass the baby at home. You're going to pass the baby at home, or the, or the pregnancy. They didn't say the baby. Um, and that was very difficult for me. You know, as a 28-year-old girl, um, a Christian. Why do I keep thinking I'm falling off of this? Um, it was very difficult because that was really the first time I had kind of lost as far as in God, being this good person. And I couldn't really understand why God was letting me have this loss. You know, I was a good person. I was trying to serve the Lord. I was trying to do the right thing. I was trying to not be like my family, and I was having this loss. They sent me home, and Gosh, probably 10 days later, I was still just bleeding. And I went back to the doctor, and they said, well, Mrs. Woods, you're not going to be able to pass the pregnancy at home. We're going to go ahead and give you a, a surgery. It was called a DNC. And I went in, and, and for some reason, I think everybody was out of town, and, and I just had to do this by myself, pretty much. Mark was there, um, but he's busy, and we've got a three-year-old, Hillary, and it was just a time of isolation and just really being kind of cut off from everybody and everything. And I went in and they had me sign this paper that said that they can dispose of the products of conception. They're like, we want you to sign right here. Dispose of, and I remember reading that, and I crossed it out and put my baby. And then I signed that. And I remember that hurt me because I thought, 
I just gave them permission to throw my baby away. And I went in and had a surgery, and I had a DNC. And you go to sleep, and you're pregnant, or you're kind of in a state of pregnancy, and you wake up, and you're not pregnant anymore. And they send you home with a great big bottle of pain pills and another bottle that makes you cramp. And they said, here you go. Okay, there you go. Go on out. And it was just boom, just like that. And psychologically, there's no support. There's no counseling. There's just, here you go. So I remember I came out under our, our deck, and it's just kind of a surreal feeling, and you're kind of disconnected from everything. And I had taken two of those pills, and I came out onto the deck, and I sat down. And just at that point, the sun kind of came out and hit me. I remember this vividly. And just as that sunshine hit me, those pills hit me. And I felt good. And I didn't feel sad. And I felt happy. And I felt warm. And I remember thinking, I like this feeling. I like being happy. I like not caring about my problems. I like being able to listen to my three-year-old talk for six hours and think it's fascinating. I, I, might, this, I might be onto something. And it took me a long while to go through that little, that, it was a big bottle, a big bottle of pills. But I found out if you call the doctor back, they'll give you more. And that's what I did. Called the doctor back. So I did that, gosh, probably two months before the doctor was like, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. And I proceeded to keep having problems. I kept having some uh, female problems. Um, so they kept working on me and trying to work with me. And I had extremely painful uh, menstrual cycles. And I had some issues going there. So I was kind of going back and forth and um, nursing this pill addiction that I had developed. And at that point, it was pretty moderate, as, as, as moderate as it could be, and still be actually a hook in my jaw. Um, and then in 2000, I got pregnant again. And this was with Madeline, my 17-year-old um, that I have now. And I had her, and things seemed to be fine, but immediately after I gave birth to her, I was in excruciating pain almost all the time. Um, it turned out I had endometriosis, adenomyosis, and fibroid tumors. So I had a mess in there. And they said, well, we're going to give you a surgery. And with each surgery, they send you home with a bottle of pills. They're like, well, we're going to do one more surgery. And they're going to send you home with another bottle of pills. And then we're going to do another surgery. I had so many surgeries and so many procedures. And going from specialist to specialist to specialist, and you can collect quite a lot of medication that way. So um, my addiction was growing. And I had physical pain. And what I've learned about physical pain and addiction and pain pills is once your brain acclimates to opiates, your, your pain will actually be, it will seem more than it actually is. Because your brain will say, hey, I've made a connection. Anytime you've got pain in your body, you give me something I like. I'm going to make that pain seem like it's a little bit more than what it actually is. Because I'm after something. So finally, they said, well, we can't help you anymore. What we're going to do is we're going to put you into something called pain management. And I, yes, the hush came over the crowd because we all know where this is going. 
So I went into pain management, and they said, we're going to fix you up. We're going to deal with this. We're going to get aggressive with your pain. And the doctors took me from what I would call just regular opiate pain medications and put me on, I think, things that are illegal now. And said, what we're going to have you do is we're going to have you stay ahead of the pain. You're going to stay ahead of it. What we want you to do, Maggie, is we want you to take these pills even before you feel the pain. Because once the pain gets there, it's going to be too late. So what we're going to do is have you take these pills before the pain even comes. And then if the pain comes, we're going to give you these other pills for what they call breakthrough pain. And I said, no problem. You got the right girl. I know how to do this. So I begin to medicate every pain, every negative emotion, every ache, every stress, every broken fingernail, every bad hair day. Every, uh, every time our bank account was low, anytime I had a headache, anytime I was irritated, anytime I was lonely, anytime I was hungry, anytime I was tired, I would take a pill. There wasn't a problem I couldn't fix with a pill, I thought. I started using more and more and more, and I started running out in between visits. And, you know, that's not going to go over. I'm not going to run out. So I started what's called doctor shopping. It's a felony. Google it. So what I would do is in between my pain management visits, I would go to the emergency room or I'd go to the walk-in clinic or I would go to wherever I could get in and get more pain medication. You know, I'd go in there and say, oh, I hurt my back today or my knees bothering me, or whatever. And I got caught, not by the police. This was back before they did prescription monitoring, okay? So um, my pain management doctor somehow found out about it, and he discharged me, okay? I was taking, and this is what I was prescribed, 15 to 30 high-powered painkillers daily. Yeah, daily. And I was discharged in 2009 with nothing. That ain't going to go. An addict is not just going to take no for an answer. You're not just going to be like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm not taking that anymore. I, that's going to wreak havoc on your body, on, on your brain. I was just not going to take no for an answer. So then I had to start doctor shopping full time. This became my life. I'm going to have to go. To the doctor every day because I've got to support a 15 to 30 pain pill a day habit somehow. I've got to figure out a supply for that. That's a lot of work, y'all. That's a lot of work. You can't keep going to the same places either because they recognize you. Weren't you here yesterday? Or, ma'am, we can't help you. Or, um, why don't you try to get a referral? I don't have time to wait for a referral. So I'm spending more and more time driving further and further away because you might be able to get 10 pills here, but the problem is, is I need 30. So I spent more and more time driving from place to place to place to try to fill this need I had. I was traveling and traveling and traveling, and I can remember driving further and further and further away. 
Um, you know, it doesn't take long to get through Cleveland, and then you got to get through Chattanooga, and then you got to get into Dalton, and uh, then there's Alabama, and then there's Knoxville, and then there's Kentucky. I'm not kidding. That's a lot of work, and that's a lot of time away from your family. And you can't be bothered with your job. You don't have time to work, you know, and you don't realize the problem is the pills. I was gone all the time for my children. I can remember thinking I had to do this. I had no other choice. It never was an option to me to not use pills. It was never, it never dawned on me that I had a problem. The problem was the doctor who discharged me. The problem was the ER doc who, who could see through me and wouldn't prescribe anything to me. I had job loss. I had money loss. I stole. I lied. I would steal medication from family and from friends because I was desperate. Money started to be missing. I was just missing. Where's mama? Is your mom home yet? Anybody seen Maggie? Maggie went on lunch break about 1, and I, it's 4.30. I guess she's not coming back. One day, I was in a doctor's office, and um, this was before the laws changed um, and before they had prescription monitoring and um, before there's different legalities that are going on now and where I kind of slipped in and before the opiate crisis was what it is now. And I overheard a doctor. I was in this waiting room, and I was sick and tired of being on the road chasing this. And I overheard a doctor call in a prescription. And I just, something in my brain just clicked. And I thought, I can do that. I'm, I'm well-spoken. I sound, I sound like I could have an education. I could do that. And I thought, that's really dangerous. That's risky. Not that what I was doing already wasn't risky, but I thought maybe I could get caught doing that. And then I remember thinking one day, I mean, these days that I, you guys, I was spending 12, 13, 15, sometimes 24 hours a day doctor shopping. It would be so much easier. This is how crazy I was becoming. In my mind, I thought, if I could just call in my own, I think I could do that. So that's what I did. I do not recommend it. It's fixing to get deep, y'all. Just prepare. It worked. I remember the first time it worked, I thought, well, that was easy. And I kind of got a little bit of a rush from that, thinking, huh, that was easy. That's so much easier than running all over the road. I just made a phone call. Boom. And it worked until it didn't. In 2009, I had the first of 18 arrests. And it was for prescription fraud. And I remember thinking, this can't be happening. Um, and I went to jail. And whoever said orange is the new black has never been to jail and has never worn the orange. Can I get a witness? Right? Because that ain't no joke, y'all. Jail will wake you right up. Um, it didn't cure me. It didn't heal me, clearly, because I went 17 more times after that. But I remember thinking, oh, no, I cannot do this again. Um, 
the whole time thinking, if I can get out of here in time, I can go and get more. Right? What time is it? Is it 10? Well, okay, is it 11? Okay, 12 o'clock, I think I can still go here and do this and get that. Y'all been there? My drug use escalated from there. My risk-taking behavior escalated from there. I stopped paying bills because I was spending all my time and all my money trying to get pills. Um, I can remember telling my girls, and this is one of the many, I've got so many stories. I'm just going to tell you a few. I can remember telling my girls when our power would be turned off that we were playing camping. We're playing camping. Oh, it's okay. We're going to light candles. It'll be fun. And I would try to sell that garbage to them. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, the power's off. We'll, we'll, we'll play hide and seek and we'll tell stories. As soon as mommy comes back, we'll do that. And I would leave my children with candles to go do what I thought I had to do. Eventually, this proceeded, these behaviors happened over and over again. I was spending the money, making horrible decisions, really making things bad at home, making home a place of lack, a place of uncertainty, a place of anxiety. And then I made us homeless. I did that a few times. Um, I don't know if you've ever been thrown out of a house, but what happens is the sheriff comes, and they ring your doorbell or knock on your door or whatever, and they give you 30 minutes to leave. And I remember in particular one time um, I was taking a shower, and when I got out, Mark said, babe, um, the sheriff came. And it wasn't the first time this had happened. And he said, um, we've got 30 minutes to be gone. And I remember it was Hillary's birthday, and we, I'd made her a little cake. Um, and you can kind of see just the confusion here and the kind of me trying to still be this mom that clearly I wasn't being and my drug use and my criminal behavior. I was still trying to hold on to both. And the sheriff's office said, you've got to leave. And I remember they take all your stuff and they just throw it on the lawn. They just put it in the yard. And that sheriff, one of the sheriff's deputies, was holding Hillary's birthday cake. He said, I've got this, ma'am. I've got this. And it was just so strange. And I remember I went to go pick up one of the girls from school. And I had all our stuff all piled up in the back of our car. And by that time, a lot of chaos had happened. A lot of bad things had gone down. And I can't remember which daughter it was, but when they came to the car, they just got in the car and went, looked straight ahead and said, what happened, Mom? With really no expression. Because these kinds of things were getting to be typical and normal for them. My family moved from place to place. We would move in and be thrown out just in a matter of months. And it happened over and over and over again. We lived in hotels and our girls pretty much stopped going to school. Because if you're up all night, you can't manage to get your children off to school. And Mark's working 24-7 trying to pay for the chaos that I'm causing. And before long, truancy comes for you. And of course, I'm not going to let them come for me, so I throw Mark to the sharks. So that man went to jail because of me, because of our girls not being in school. Um, we lived in hotels, and I had more arrests, 
and I never went to any of my court dates because I was too busy running, too busy chasing, too busy thinking I was going to fix it. And I've taught that. I kept telling myself, I'm going to fix all of this. And I would have flashes of clarity. I would cry on my bed at night in the different places we stay, and I would pray, and I would beg God to help me. And I didn't even really know what I was asking him to help me do or help me to overcome because I really still didn't think I had a problem. Maybe I still don't have a problem. I knew there were problems, but I didn't really realize that I had the problem or that I was the problem. I prayed and talked to Jesus throughout my active addiction. By the time it was dawning on me that I was in real trouble, I felt trapped. And I felt like there's no way out of this. I, could, I was so tired. I was so exhausted because all I did was go, go, and I was a slave to that. I had to go. I had to chase. I had to find. I had to have more pills. I had to. I had no other option. It never dawned on me that I could just quit or that I could get help. I could see that my family was tired. I could see that my babies were tired. I remember Madeline in particular. She was probably 9 or 10 years old, and she had little dark circles under her little eyes. And Mark would look at me. Sometimes when he would come and bail me out of jail, he would just look at me. And some of you have seen this look, and it's just fear. It's just fear. It's like watching somebody drown or watching somebody bleed out and not being able to do anything about it. And he would just look at me like that, like he didn't know what to do. And my little girls still worshipped me. They still adored me. I was still mama to them. I could do no wrong. They thought the police were bad. I started realizing that all this was a design to kill me. I realized that this is how I'm going to die. I couldn't stop. And there was nothing I could do about it. I was at a new level of misery. I was horrible. I wasn't a, a good person. I was a horrible mother. I was a terrible wife. I wasn't a good Christian. I hated myself. In December of 2011, we had just moved into another house. And I was frantically trying to get Christmas together for my girls, still trying to fix it. Trying to fix what I can't fix trying to paste it and put it back together and act like it's okay, and it wasn't. And I was out on a pill run, and it was the middle of the night. And during this move, I think Mark was in jail on a truancy violation that I had caused, and Pastor had a group of men that he was helping in rehab. I'm sorry. And all our stuff was in a storage bin, and Pastor came out, and he had all the guys getting all the stuff off the, out of the, the truck and put into the storage bin so that we could find a place. And he had helped me try to move, and he tried to minister to me. And you know, Pastor, he's so subtle. He'll get you. You won't even know what's happening. And he gave me, he gave me a CD, and it was America the Addicted. He said, just listen to this. You know, no pressure. You know, he's cool. You don't even, you got me. And I said, okay, okay. And we had fun that day, and I think we laughed, and it was good. It just felt good. 
you know, by that time I was way disconnected from the church and disconnected from everybody. So this night we had moved into this house and it was about two or three o'clock in the morning and I was out getting pills and I had stopped by Walmart on the way home. And I always joke that all the addicts go to Walmart late at night. And why do we go there? It's a thing. It's true. Like we're all like, yep, we've all been there. So I was sitting in the car at Walmart here in Cleveland, and it was probably 2 o'clock, 2, 3 in the morning, and I'm kind of nodding in and out of consciousness, and I'm at a new level of misery. I'm dying. And I can sense it. Something had changed. And my body was worn down, and my mind was worn down, and I wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating. I was running. And I put in that CD because I was scared because I could feel death all around me. I could feel coldness all around me. And I'm in and out of consciousness. And I put in the CD. And there's a part in the CD when I would, I would come in and out and I was listening to it and trying to half pray and try to figure out how I can fix things. And in this CD, America the Addicted, there's a part where pastor is teaching about if you have a loved one that is caught out in addiction or, or some other hang-up or they're caught up in some type of sin or some type of bondage, there's a prayer that you can pray, and it's based on Hosea and Gomer, and uh, it's a prayer called the Hedge of Thorns. And you can pray that that hedge would, would, would surround that loved one that's making bad decisions so that anytime they make a choice, they're kind of pricked by their choices and they're corrected and they're hedged about so that what they've been pursuing doesn't give them pleasure anymore, doesn't help them anymore, doesn't give them the relief that they want, and they become hedged in. And I remember just in those moments, and it was fuzzy that night, fuzzy. I hadn't slept in probably two or three days, and I prayed that prayer for myself. And I just took a little bit of time, and as Pastor was praying on that CD, I agreed with him, and I said, I pray the hedge of thorns around myself. And then he said afterwards, he said, after you pray this prayer, expect things to happen. And I was just like, okay. And I'm listening to the CD. He said, there may be an arrest. And I was like, I wish I would have listened to this before I prayed that prayer. <laughs> things may change drastically. And I'm like, okay, let's fast forward through this part. And I was just like, whatever, it's fine. And I turned it off, took a pill. Probably went into Walmart for another three hours, like we do, right? What do we do in there? I know, I don't even, I don't get, yeah, the clearance aisle, you're right, it's, it's, a, it's a thing, it is a thing. Um, and then I left, and I'm trying to fix things, patch things together, and my little girls who have been raised in church are trusting God. They are hopeful, they are full of faith, and they are pumped about Christmas, and Hillary, this is, this is neat. Hillary had put signs. <sighs> Hillary had put signs on her window that said, Satan, you're not going to win. And she faced them outward so that anything that was coming by could see it. She said, this is our house and you're not going to win. And she pasted in that her, her little window, my oldest. My little youngest was so excited about Christmas, and they're pumped, and they're, they're faithful, and they're believing Jesus, and they're hopeful, 
and they, they trust their mama, though I had failed them. They were looking to their parents to fix all this that we couldn't fix. We were out late one night. We were down to one car. It had several vehicles seized. Um, we still had one left at that point that hadn't been seized yet. And I say yet because it eventually got gone. Um, and we were driving, and we had gone to Walmart again, and we were shopping for things for the house, and the girls are pumped, and they're excited, and we're getting ready for Christmas. It's December 22nd, 2011. And we were going to go get Mark after we left Walmart. He worked at Aubrey, still does. And we had to go pick him up from work. And we were driving out of Walmart, and I think my girls were kind of fussing. And I've got warrants everywhere. Haven't been to a court date anywhere. I had warrants in Whitfield County, Hamilton County, Bradley County, state of Tennessee, state of Georgia. Hadn't, hadn't bothered with any of that because I'm going to fix that later. And I pull out of Walmart with my lights off. Yeah. 2 a.m. And I turn right, and we're going down uh, the road, and I see the, the sheriff's car, and I see him brake so hard, his car hits forward. And I'm like, what is it? Because every time I saw a cop, hello, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, play it cool, play it cool. And I look, I look down, and my dash is dark. And I'm like, holy cow, here we go. And he, I see him flip around super fast. I mean, he spun that car, and he hit the lights. And that prayer I prayed in that Walmart parking lot, that hedge of thorns was coming to get me. And that night, they came up. They said, may I see your license and registration? And I would love to give you that, officer, but I don't have one. I didn't tell him that. Oh, I don't have that with me. Don't have that with me. Um, he said, well, what's your Social Security number? I gave him that, and I'm just like, girls, as he went back, he goes, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. No problem. I said, I didn't have my lights on. Play it cool. Be cool. Be cool. I got this. I'm going to fix this. He said, I can go look it up. So he goes to the back, and, and I tell the girls, I'm like, girls, I may have to go. And Hillary said, I'm not going to let them take you, Mama. I'm not going to let them take you, Mama. And Madeline gets real quiet. And I said, I may have to go. If I have to go, just know it'll be okay. It'll be okay. We're not going to let them take you. We're not going to let them take you. The police officer comes up to the window and says, ma'am, could you step out of the vehicle? You all know what happens when they say that. Somebody's fixing to go. I step out of the vehicle and they say, ma'am, are you aware you have warrants? No. What? Me? No. Never? What? What's, what is no, what's a warrant? You know, I'm just trying to play it cool. Yes, ma'am, you have multiple warrants. Um, are, do you know what your warrants are for? No, I, I didn't even know I had warrants. I thought everything was fine. I said, I think I might have missed a court date, but, um, you know, it's fine. And they said, ma'am, we can work with the no license. We can work with the light violation, but there's nothing we can do about warrants. Then I go into, it's Christmas. Ma'am, we're sorry. And then I go to, can I at least say goodbye to my girls? They said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And I go up to the girls, and I come to the side of the window, and I said, Mama's got to go. 
Mama's got to go. And then they handcuffed me in front of my children. And I could hear my girls screaming, screaming, and praying in tongues, asking Jesus to please help Mama. Please make this stop. Please come to our rescue, God. I could hear Madeline say, God, why aren't you helping us? And I talked to her about it today, and she said, Mom, we were asking God for a miracle, and what we didn't know that he was giving us that miracle. And as they arrested me and took me in the car and took me away, I was wanted in all those places. I remember thinking, this is it. This is it. And it was the, the best thing that could have happened to me and I picked up my little box of stuff after they booked me in and I remember walking and they were going to put me in an isolation cell um, in H pod those of you that have been to Bradley and I remember walking towards that because Hamilton County was coming for me in the morning it was going to be a long journey and I walked down that and I said okay God let's do this let's do this and that was six years three months and uh, 14 days that I have been clean since that night, since that night, and it was the worst Christmas for my family, but the best thing God could have done for me, and I've heard stories of recovery where people were instantly set free, and they were healed, and they didn't have any withdrawal at all, and they went to court, and their charges were all dropped, but that wasn't the case for me. That did not happen to me. I was very sick, and I was very uncomfortable and I was very miserable and I was very up to my eyeballs in criminal charges in a lot of different places I was in full-blown opiate withdrawal and at the beginning of a jail tour it was about to get real and real quick everybody wanted me everybody wanted me I ended up eventually in drug court here in Bradley County, and I got the treatment that I so desperately needed. Slowly but surely, life got better. It took time, and it took work, and it took effort, and it took a whole lot of crying, and it took a whole lot of begging. It took a whole lot of suffering for me. And I do believe in complete healing. I believe people come to the altar and get set free. I believe that. I believe that people make decisions to be clean and to be whole and to be free and accept that and instantly have that. That's just not how it happened for me. I would love to say um, that it was easy, but it wasn't. It took time for things to get so very, very bad. And it took time for things to get better. And it was just a little bit at a time, y'all. I would love to say everything's been easy since then. That since I had that night in 2011 when I was arrested in front of my children and spent Christmas away from my babies, and I had my little 10-year-old on the phone asking me if Santa lost our address. Does Santa know our new address, Mom? Because I don't think he knows where we are because it's Christmas and there's nothing here. Mom, why didn't God help us? Mom, why do the police hate you? <laughs> Mom, why do we have to move again? 
I'd love to say that it's been easy, but it's not been easy. And I would love to say as soon as I got clean, everything happened perfectly, but that would be a lie. I had so many legal hoops to jump through. I had fines to pay. I had jail time to do. I had probation officers to answer to. I had states to answer to. I had to jump through every hoop. I had to learn to work and to take care of myself. I had to learn to find value. I had to have pain that I had to heal. I had to apologize to some people. I had to make some things right. I had to earn trust back. It was a journey. I had to gain, again, some things that we had lost, like trust, like faith, like peace in our home, like electricity being on, like mommy being there all day. And then I had to realize that there were some things that I had lost that I wasn't going to get back. There's collateral damage along the way. And even though I went to jail, there are worse things than going to jail. You bring me that, Mark, of my brother. This is my brother, Bobby, if you'll just hold it up. My brother lived in Ohio, and we were very close as teenagers and young adults. And Bobby and I had parallel drug addictions. And a couple of times we were in jail at the same time. You can imagine my parents and family having to deal with that. And we would write to each other in jail, and we planned our comebacks together. I got you, Bob. You got me? I got you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? Doing good. Fighting the fight. Staying clean. You clean, Bob? Yes. I'm clean, too. All right. All right. All right. And we would fight together. When we both got out and started working and rebuilding our lives, it seems like I was able to gain ground, and I would gain a little bit of ground. I'd say, Bob, I got a job. I got a job. And he'd be like, well, I haven't gotten a job yet. Or I got a job, but they fired me. They did a background check, and they fired me. I'd be like, okay, well, you'll get another one. You'll get another one. Stay clean. Keep fighting. And I would take another step forward, and it would seem like Bob would take a step forward, and then he'd take three steps back. I'd say, don't give up, brother. Don't give up. You got this. You got this. And Bob was increasingly frustrated and increasingly angry. And he started to kind of blame other people. And I'd say, don't get like that, Bob. Don't get like that. You got this. You can do this. You can make a difference. And I started making better money. I started being able to, I could buy a home. I could buy a car. I started having things again. And he still struggled. My brother was brilliantly funny and could light up a room with his personality. He was a loyal confidant. He loved Jesus and adored his family. He was my baby brother, and he drove me crazy, and I loved him. He was one of my best friends. On January 19, 2017, my brother died alone in a ratty hotel room, still struggling, of a fentanyl and heroin overdose. He was 41. I promised Bob and I promised Jesus that I would make his life count that I would make his struggle count, that I would make my struggle count, that I would tell a little bit of his story because I don't know his whole story. And he can tell us that someday in heaven. But people have asked me, you can just lay that there, babe. What was the difference, Maggie, between you and Bob? What was the difference? And I don't know. 
all the differences, and I don't presume to know everything about recovery. I've only got six years clean, guys, and I will be the first to admit I do not have this in the bag. I'm not that foolish. I'm not that arrogant that I think, oh, I've got this. Because this is a life and death thing. This is a journey that I'm going to carry my whole life. But what I found about my brother and between me and him is that he consistently chose to use one more time. He consistently said, I'm going to do this one more time. I got this. One more time won't hurt me. One more time for old time's sake. One more time. And that night in the hotel room, he was due to go back to rehab Friday morning. Thursday night, he used one more time. He didn't learn to love himself. He believed the labels, and labels get put on us. You're a junkie. Addicts don't really change. Druggies don't change. I don't know if you've really changed. I don't know if we're going to let Maggie go in there by herself. I don't know if she's really changed. And people will put labels on you, and it does happen. And he believed the labels. And Bob couldn't see that things could ever get any better. He thought he was always going to struggle. He thought he was always going to feel bad. He thought he was always going to want to use. He couldn't see that things were ever going to get better. He never learned how to cast his own vision. And today I was thinking about this. This is something that's really helped me. Maybe it'll help you. You have to learn to look ahead and to cast your own vision to where you want to be. Like right now, and I did this from the time I was in a jail cell, when I finally figured out me and Jesus were going to do this, we're going to get this done. Okay, the first thing me and Jesus are going to do is I'm going to go a week and I'm not going to use. That's my vision. That's my vision. And then I would get through that week and then I'd say, okay, we're going to go two weeks. That's my vision. And I would go through that. And then I think when I get out of here, I'm going to get a job. That's my vision. And I've done that. Even now I do it. Even now I do it. I say, well, I'm going to get a car, and then I'm going to pay off this bill, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to tell my story. And I cast that vision. Bob never really got a hold of that. He stayed in his little world, and he told himself things were never going to change. Things can't get better. But change is possible. Change is possible. Let me testify that change is possible. You can change. When you change, life can change. But it starts with you. Austin, if you'll show some pictures for me. I'm going to tell you something, that life can change. You can change. And Austin's going to put up some pictures, and we're going to talk about, wow. You remember, that's a glamorous day right there, kids. You can change. This girl right here spent 13 years becoming the worst version of herself. Go ahead and go to the next one. This girl was unrecognizable to herself, unrecognizable to her family. Go ahead. My life had become unmanageable. My world was unmanageable. I had hurt my children. I had hurt my husband. I had hurt my parents, my siblings. I was alienated and completely isolated. I felt there was no way out. And there was no way ever 
to fix my life. But I was wrong. I want to show you guys what a miracle looks like. This girl got into her head that she and Jesus were going to fix this thing. That I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. That I didn't know what to do, but I served a God who knew what to do. I didn't know how to fix the broken places. I didn't know how to stop wanting to use. I didn't know. I didn't know how bad life had become and how I could ever get it back together. I didn't know. But I got to the point where I didn't care. And I said, Jesus, help me. Help this girl. Me and you. And I don't care whatever else happens. I remember being in a jail cell on a cold floor and saying, Jesus, I don't care about anything else but me and you. And I did this, me and you. If you've never seen what a miracle looks like, I'm going to show you what a miracle looks like if you'll hit that last one. This is what it looks like. This is Easter Sunday. And that is my family. Those are those little girls that were scared. Those were those little babies that said, why isn't God helping us? That little blonde one is the one that put the sign on the window and says, Satan, you will not win. And Satan did not win. There, there's the little dog that went into boarding for 30 days. He went to jail too, God love him. I mean, it affected everybody. That is a healed family. That is a whole family. My 17-year-old, the little redhead standing next to me, she said, Mama, I am glad we went through what we went through because now we know. Now God can use us. We can be helpful to other people. She said, I hated not to have Christmas with you that year, but I would rather have missed you for one Christmas than miss you the rest of my life. People can change, guys. That's a miracle. I'm a miracle. Thank you so very much for having me. I hope it encouraged you. I hope it blessed you. Um, Be encouraged. You can change. No matter how bad things are, things can get better. You can get better. Amen.